Breaking news, the manhunt for an armed suspect in Maine. There are 22 people reported dead in multiple shootings tonight on Laura Coates Live. This is CNN Breaking News. There is truly stunning news tonight out of Maine. 22 people are dead in multiple shootings in Lewiston, Maine. Sources telling CNN that 50 to 60 people are reported injured in the incidents, though it's unclear how many are injured due to gunfire. Central Maine Medical Center has confirmed that they are reacting to a mass casualty, mass shooter event. A suspect is still at large as we speak, and you're looking at a photo of him armed with an assault-style rifle. And do look closely to that photograph, because the police, they want anyone who thinks they may recognize him to please call 911, and they are warning everybody in that area to stay inside of your home with the doors locked. Police releasing this photo of a vehicle they believe to be the suspect's car with a front pay bumper that is painted black. The Lewiston Police Department identified the businesses where two active shooting incidents took place. There was a bar and a grill called Shemenegis, um, Shemenegis, excuse me, and a bowling alley called Spare Time Recreation that according to a post on Facebook. Now, there was video that was shared with CNN, and it shows the scene at that bowling alley with a very large police presence and people who, as you see, are sprinting away from the location. I want to get right to CNN's Josh Campbell and chief law enforcement analyst John Miller. Gentlemen, on nights like this, I cannot believe that we are here again and thinking about all of these things. Let me first go, um, do we have John, do we have Josh here right now? Josh, this is a very fluid situation. We are trying to get the information as quickly as we can. The public is desperate for more information, particularly in this community, a very small one. And the shooter is still at large, Josh. We have a photo of his car, but with that information and the photograph, how are police tracking him down and wherever that car might be? Well, this is a massive manhunt that is underway involving now multiple agencies. This occurred, as you mentioned, in a small community. Uh, then what happened was police called in what's called mutual aid. They bring in resources from other neighboring police departments. The federal law enforcement officers are there, as well as the state police, just providing every type of resource that they can in order to physically try to find this person, but also gather information behind the scenes regarding, you know, uh, surveillance footage from the scenes of these two shootings, interviewing witnesses, trying to determine if anyone knew who this suspect was in an attempt to try to locate where he might be at this hour. Of course, making that so much more challenging for law enforcement is this is happening under the cover of darkness, and they are uh, uh, trying to identify and apprehend a shooter who has already killed 22 people, a mass murderer uh, that they are on the, the hunt for now, who was using a high-powered assault-style rifle, according to police. I want to focus there on that rifle as we look at that photo. This was released by authorities from uh, the Bowling Alley shooting. You can see a high-powered assault-style rifle with a large capacity, what's called a magazine. That's the contraption that holds the ammunition that goes into the gun. Why is that so important? Because, Laura, as you and I have covered so many of these mass shootings, this is so often the weapon of choice for many of the nation's deadliest mass shooters because you have that high-powered velocity. You can also fire multiple rounds in quick succession, but also you don't have to reload as many times as you would with, for example, a pistol. And so, again, time and again, in so many of these cases, we've seen that type of weaponry. That, of course, is why authorities will be on high alert out there as they try to identify identify and possibly approach and apprehend this person, he is certainly uh, uh, armed with a very high-powered rifle at this hour, uh, Laura. 
I mean, just hearing the words time and again, and just how yeah. frequently we have been here, and we're seeing this happening again now in Lewiston, Maine. You know, John, you have some new information, we're told, about where things stand right now. So police have identified the suspect. We're told by multiple law enforcement sources. His name is Robert Card. He's about 40 years old. He, um, and, and, you know, he has, a, he has a reason to look competent with his weapon. Uh, he's former military. He is reportedly still in the military reserves. He is a certified firearms and tactics instructor, which obviously makes him more proficient than even the average trained shooter. Um, he is uh, known to be attached to um, an Army Reserve unit up there in Maine, and he is still at large. Uh, he has uh, got a white Subaru, that's the car we've seen in that photograph that apparently took him from one shooting location to another that is registered to him. And police are obviously saturating the area looking for Robert Card tonight as a person of interest in this case. The idea, and I heard you correctly, this is somebody with military experience, a reservist, a reservist, someone who is well-trained in how to operate a weapon, in fact, teaches it. This complicates it extremely for law enforcement because, Josh, with that military experience, and you yourself have been a reservist in your own right, the idea that this is somebody from that community, it's stunning. And particularly someone who not is just trained in the use of firearms, but also trains other soldiers in how to manipulate, how to accurately fire a weapon, certainly uh, challenges, makes the situation more challenging. We know based on John Miller, who initially broke the number of uh, uh, victims here, sadly, that were killed, that gave us that insight very quickly that this was someone who was very precise with that high-powered assault-style rifle to be able to uh, be that accurate in that shooting. Uh, that is obviously very telling. And you look at the video right there, the still sh uh, shot that was released by authorities. You see someone in a, in a tactical posture that uh, indicates that it appears as though he knows how to manipulate that weapon. We now are indicating why that's the case. He's a firearms instructor, according to that reporting. And then lastly, uh, if you look at this picture, you can see this individual uh, looks like he's wearing cargo shorts. We have I mean, not cargo shorts, cargo pants, rather. Mm -hmm. We have seen time and again in these mass shootings, mass shooters will come armed to the teeth with additional rounds of ammunition on their person so that when they expend one magazine, they can then quickly reload as they continue this you know, morbid, murderous task of trying to indiscriminately kill people. That makes this situation obviously that much more challenging for authorities who are hunting from this sus for this suspect. For example, if he was able to make his way into uh, uh, the, a wooded area, this is uh, parts up there are very rural and secretes himself, for example, he, they're dealing with someone who is an accurate shooter, which obviously makes it much more dangerous for authorities who are out there with on the manhunt at this hour, Laura. A really important point, because I want to remind the audience, it wasn't too long ago when we were looking in Pennsylvania, for example, and there was an active manhunt, and the idea of the darkness, the foliage, what the area may have looked like, the more rural it was, the more opportunities for somebody to hide, to evade capture. This is now going to be complicated all the more, Jonathan Miller, when you're talking about it's dark. You've got a rural area with a lot of tree cover, we understand at some point, and somebody who has the military training and also obviously a law enforcement officer who'd be trying to capture this person. Is there an even greater risk now? Well, there definitely is. And, you know, what we don't know, what we do know is that according to law enforcement in Maine, 
They believe this individual has already killed uh, more than 20 people, um, wounded dozens more, and is a highly trained tactician um, and expert in the handling of firearms who has military experience. That begs the question, when they find him, what will his intentions be? We know certain things, and Josh Campbell's very aware of this from his FBI experience, that based on the Bureau's studies of offender characteristics and active shooter situations, you know, there are three notable outcomes. That the person is confronted by law enforcement and takes their own life. That the person is confronted by law enforcement and, in, and, and attempts to take their lives. Um, or that the person surrenders. And, you know, in this situation, given what has happened, this is going to be extraordinarily dangerous for law enforcement even to make this approach. Unbelievable. Josh, John, stick around. We're going to lean on your expertise here because this is a very fast-moving situation right now. Everyone, please stand by. We're going to now bring in an eyewitness to the events that unfolded outside of that bowling alley called the Spare Time Recreation Bowling Alley. Nicole wyman Arell joins me over the phone. Nicole, you and your family, I understand, you are currently sheltering in place as there is a police hunt for this shooter. How are you... How is your family right now? Uh, right now, we're kind of exhausted um, mm. from a lot of people reaching out, but we're just trying to help get it out there. Mainly, the, the goal was to make sure that people knew what was happening. When we were shooting, well, when I was shooting the video, um, we were just trying to figure out, you know, there's so many police cars, so many ambulances just... Like, what is going on? Is there another bomb threat? You know, those happen often here and there. and Or a gas leak or something. We are just kind of being nosy. And I was zooming in with my, with my phone. I figured I'd record. And then we started speculating, well, something maybe something major happened. And it wasn't until it was really confirmed um, that there was an active shooter that we mm. should probably clear the area because there was an active shooter at large and that... Roughly 20 people were down, um, oh. and then we left right away. It was a friend and I and uh, my youngest daughter. We were on our way home from Girl Scouts. So. I, you know, I, my own daughter is a Girl Scout, and I'm just trying to think of what it would be like to have her in the car. You were driving home as all this was unfolding. You, as a mother, are trying to get your bearings, trying to understand what the scene is, maybe not knowing what your daughter might be seeing or exposed to. Can you just walk us through what you were seeing in those moments as you're seeing a police presence and beyond? So what you see on the TV resolution, you actually see it a lot better than I could see through my phone. Mm. <laughs> it's on a smaller screen. I don't have the best eyes anyways. It's nighttime. I was zoomed in. Um, so we just saw like a lot of ruckus and stuff. We did see uh, people getting patted down, but um we ended up realizing it looked like they were patting people down as they were coming out just to make sure that they weren't um, whoever was causing whatever was happening in there. Cause like I said, at the time we didn't really know for sure. Um, and I guess. What were the, what were the age of people that you were seeing coming out? We were, we heard a report earlier oh gosh, today, potentially kids. of children. You, you saw little children coming out. Yeah, there was kids. That's like looking back, like that was, um, probably the hardest part, seeing just families, families pouring out of there um, and knowing that that 
that happened in there while they were just probably trying to have a family night. How many people do you recall seeing an estimate? I know it's difficult. About how many people did you see coming out? Do you think it was a dozen? It was a couple dozen? Oh, no, it was more than. uh, It was definitely more than a dozen. I'm so bad with something like this. But I mean, in the video, you see a lot of the people off to the side, too. They did kind of pile off to the side. Most of what you see in the video, um, when I kind of pan to the left, all those people standing there and stuff, like those were people that were inside. Um, Did you see anyone who was injured coming out of the uh, bowling alley? Did you see any visible signs that somebody had been harmed at that point? um, Not as they were coming out, but after we did see some people with, um, as we were actually leaving the scene, we did see somebody that um, looked like they they had blood all over them. We couldn't tell if if that person was injured themselves, but definitely the person in the middle of this person and another, um, they were helping her. They, I'm not sure, um, kind of helping them and they were bent over a little bit and it looked like they were actually bleeding from like their stomach or, or somewhere in the front area. Did you see any of the people coming out of the bowling alley carrying anyone Not that I can recall. I I mean, it's all kind of a blur. I wasn't really taking in a lot of the details. Um, I honestly did not think that this was going to be as big as it turned out to be, um, especially not going all through Lewiston the way it has. Nicole, what did, what did, what did you tell your daughter who was with you? I, I, I just can't imagine as a mother how to make sense of it and to relay that to a child. I mean, we have open dialogue, you know, so we, we talked about it. She was definitely scared. She's like, you know, she started crying. She's like, this is a scary world. We live in mom. And I'm like, I know. And, um, you know, my older kids were talking about getting, um, backpacks for, uh, the ones, the bulletproof backpacks, uh, you know, cause Ooh. it seems like there's always some sort of threat at the school. Um, you know, she's starting to be, Stuff like that gets real when something so big happens. It's like, okay, yeah, it really could be our school next. Um, so we this... came home and she wanted to lock up right away. We locked up, locked up the windows, everything. I do have a firearm, so um, it made her feel better to know that I was carrying it around um, and had it all ready to go. Just she was scared somebody was going to come into our home, and I told her you gotta you gotta remember that odds could be so slim for that. So. Try not to worry so much, but I will do whatever I can to make you feel better in the meantime, too. Whatever you can to do that. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And and just are you getting alerts on your phone locally right now about any yeah. updates about whether they have found this person? What kind of alert are you getting right now? Um, so not that they found him. Um, that they have identified him, who he is. Um, as far as I know, I think he's still at large. Uh, we've just been getting, um, the alerts that go through telling us to shelter in place, um, to stay home and be safe, you know, just kind of alerting us to, to the fact that it's still going on. Like it's not safe out there right now. Nicole Wyman, Aral, thank you so much. I'm really thinking about you and your daughter and just trying to 
as everyone is, process this in real time. We've just shown on the screen as well a photograph of the suspect who has been identified. He is on the screen right now. Thank you so much, Nicole, for taking the time to help us try to understand what has taken place. Everyone, look at the picture on your screen. Police officers are looking for more information. If this is somebody you know or recognize or have any information whatsoever in this very fluid situation, we are going to be covering every single angle and bringing you everything you need to know. We're going to take a very quick break right now. Come back with us. We'll have more on the breaking news. A mass shooting tonight in Lewiston, Maine. 22 people reported dead. A person of interest identified on that screen. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Our breaking news, the mass shooting tonight in Lewiston, Maine, 22 people reported dead. A person of interest has been identified. Let's go to John Miller right now. John, what are you learning about this person of interest? Well, we're learning a little bit more about the man that that police are calling a person of interest in the shooting of 22 people and the wounding of dozens more. Robert Card, about 40 years old, he is a former military person, still associated with the Army Reserves, uh, attached to a, a base up in Saco, Maine. Additional background on him is that we are told he recently lost his job at a recycling center. Um, this is one of those things that could have been a stressor that added to problems that he may have already been experiencing. Law enforcement sources say he also was um, complaining to hear voices um, that uh, there was a threat to shoot up the military base at Saco where he had been attached and that he spent two weeks um, at a mental institution being evaluated in Maine um, and then he was medically cleared to go and released. Um, More recently, it appears he lost his job. So we're seeing an individual who is um, got experience, has got mm-hmm. tactical training uh, with mm-hmm. firearms, who has had some mental health issues, and who apparently um, or allegedly uh, snapped tonight and uh, put his his experience um, and his training to work in a in a terrible, terrible way. I mean, this I want to bring in Josh Campbell back to the conversation as well. There has been a person of interest identified. Josh, you just heard what John gave as additional information here. 
a potential stressor is one of the words that he used. Take a step back with me for a second as you're trying to understand either motive or the reasoning or how to track the person down. Talk to me about what factors into the investigation. Why would a stressor, so to speak, be something that was important? Yeah, it's a major question. You know, so many of these mass shootings that we've covered, uh, we end up hearing that there was some type of warning sign by people who were in the shooter's orbit, whether that was uh, a stress, whether that was potential mental health uh, concerns. And obviously, it's worth pointing out that, you know, the vast majority of people who face mental health challenges don't go on to become violent. That's important to state every single time. But we have seen in incidents where you have people who did see something, but may not have felt, uh, you know, that, that they could do something about it or if they wanted to come forward. There will be questions for the U.S. military, uh, especially this reserve unit. All three of us on this screen right now have worked at the U.S. Department of Justice and are familiar with what is called the insider threat. It's something that government agencies, the military is constantly on the lookout. We tend to think of that as, you know, people who are maybe stealing classified information, but that also includes people on the inside who might pose a harm to others. And so, again, that's a question here. Did someone who was in this uh, individual reserve unit, were they the ones who initially precipitated this suspect undergoing mental health evaluation or was it something else? And, and what type of assessment was there? Again, I say that again because time and again, it's the warning signs. We can focus on the motive, which we obviously will. We focus on the victims, which certainly we will. But yes. the one thing that I think, you know, as we have all these incidents that people kind of move on from, well, what were those warning signs that people out there watching right now may be wanting to look at, you know, in their loved ones and people at, at their place of business. And so major questions tonight for both the military and, you know, anyone else who may have known this individual if he had exhibited these signs. John, Josh, please continue to bring us everything you have. The latest updates, every piece of information is important for us to understand and present to this audience who is really interested and invested in finding out what has happened here. And of course, the lives that have already been lost and those who've been impacted as well. Joining me now, Don Dosti. He actually lives one block from the Lewiston bowling alley. Don, no one ever thinks it could ever happen where they are. It's happened now in your community. What are you feeling tonight? My first reaction was uh, a lot of anger that it was happening in the community because uh, Mainers were much better than this. Um, and, uh, you know, it's this, you've had these interviews with people all over the country before in a mass shooting. You, you just can't believe it's going to happen in your hometown. And, and here we are. I got helicopters flying over my house with searchlights, and it, it's unreal. What are you hearing and seeing tonight? You said you have the helicopters. Did you hear, you're only a, a very short one block away from the bowling alley. Did you hear gunshots tonight or anything? When I got home, <clears throat> we locked down and I loaded my rifle and, and, uh, and our, our handgun. So I was busy doing that. I, I walked out on the deck for a short time, thought I heard uh, rat-a-tat uh, in the distance, but I think mostly what I've been hearing, honestly, is sirens. Uh, like I said, the helicopters flying flying above. We, we have a view of Main Street, so I just saw police car after police car after police car flying by and then ambulances going to the hospital. Do you have a sense of how many ambulances you saw leaving that bowling alley? I only saw, uh, I didn't see them leave the bowling alley, but they were, they were coming from that direction. And I would, mm. there were at least two uh, 
as far as police cars, there had to be a dozen or more. I mean, there was there was quite a quite a bunch of law enforcement uh, officers heading that way. This bowling alley, I mean, it's it's a Wednesday night. Normally, that would be in many communities uh, a bowling league night or others who are who are engaged in bowling at this particular time. Can you give us a sense about this bowling alley? Who do you normally see coming and going from this place? Is it something that even midweek is is pretty busy or is it slower? What can you tell us? I've never been there on a Wednesday night, uh, and uh, but. I have bowled before, and uh, mm-hmm. they do have teams. Um, I listened to Cole earlier in, in the interview, and uh, tonight was families. I mean, uh, it's unbelievable, uh, just unbelievable that somebody would go into a place like that and start shooting at families. It really, it's, it's unconscionable to think this is even happening in any community across the country. And a block from your home, I, are you told to shelter in place tonight? What are you being told? Oh, we, we have. I've, been, I've had my phone on, and uh, the Androscoggin County Sheriff's Department has sent out bulletins to stay inside, stay safe. Um, you know, so uh, we're, we're, we've been getting news on Facebook. I have friends who work in the hospital. My tenant upstairs actually works in the emergency department for CMMC. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he came downstairs and told us there was an active shooter in the area. And uh, that's when we locked down. Don Dosti, thank you so much. We are thinking of you and your community. It's unbelievable this has happened. Thank you so much for giving us the information that you were able to do today. Yep, thank you. We're going to be back with much more on our breaking news tonight. We know that 22 people have been reported dead in multiple mass shootings in Lewiston, Maine. Thank you for uh, joining us here uh, this evening. My name is Mike Sostruck. I'm the commissioner for the Department of Public Safety here in Maine. Uh, We truly do appreciate your patience and your partnership as we work with all of our partners across the law enforcement spectrum, all local, state, county, and federal. Breaking news is a press conference. uh, Listen in. Address and investigate. Uh, these violent crimes that occurred in the city of Lewiston this evening. Uh, As you know, this is an experienced group. Uh, We won't have a lot of uh, Q&A here this evening. This still is very fresh. It's new. Uh, It's new for all of us. Uh, And our focus is on the investigation and getting this right uh, the first time. Uh, And we're doing that with our partners. And we do appreciate you putting out information from time to time. Uh, Moving forward, we would appreciate it if you got that information from us uh, so that we knew that it was accurate. Uh, And that is incredibly important for all of us from an investigative standpoint and from a public safety standpoint, that that we have a unified front uh, with this information as we release it. Uh, The delay in coming here with you now is simply because we want to confirm information from our end. We want to make sure the information we're giving you and the information that goes out to the general public is accurate. So we do have some information here that we will release. It is here on the podium. Uh, And this is a general caution to the public. Uh, that approximately 6.56 this evening, uh, a couple of shooting incidents occurred here with multiple casualties in the city of Lewiston. And police are currently searching for a Robert R. Card, 4-4 of 1983 of Bowden. Card is considered armed and dangerous. He is a person of interest, however, and that's what we'll uh, label him at uh, moving forward until that changes. If people see him, they should not approach Card or make contact with him in any way. 
the shelter in place order that currently stands in Lewiston remains. Uh, a vehicle, which was a vehicle of interest in this incident, was located in Lisbon, and we are now also asking residents in Lisbon to shelter in place. So please share that information uh, with communities as well. If anybody uh, sees Mr. Card or has any additional information referenced to these two shootings in the city of Lewiston, please contact 911. If they see anything suspicious, please feel free to call their local authorities. Uh, we have uh, literally hundreds of police officers working around the state of Maine uh, to investigate this case, to locate Mr. Card, who again is a person of interest and a person of interest only. And we'll continue to gather information so that we can bring uh, the suspect to justice and ultimately uh, seek prosecution uh, down the road. This uh, release also includes a photo, which I believe I have seen uh, from various uh, sources. Uh, I would also let you know that we have created a reunification location, and that would be at the Auburn Middle School, so in the neighboring community of Auburn, at 38 Falcon Drive. Again, that's the Auburn Middle School. And when I say reunification uh, center or location, what that means is that if somebody has a question or they have a concern, they can't find a loved one, they believe that uh, a friend or a family member may be involved in what occurred here tonight uh, in Lewiston, that they could respond to that location. Uh, we will have some of our behavioral health liaisons, counselors on, on, on site, uh, and we'll also be providing information as uh, it becomes available to us. As you can imagine, and as you know, uh, there are multiple scenes in the city to include multiple hospitals, uh, multiple follow-ups, a lot of witnesses we're speaking with, and a lot of leads. Uh, the general public has been very cooperative uh, and very forthcoming with information. So I would expect uh, if we have additional information, we'd be happy to come back uh, and share it with you. Uh, I know that uh, from the city of Lewiston standpoint, probably gonna close City Hall after this briefing and probably move everybody out. Uh, but again, we appreciate your partnership and your patience. Um, I would offer to take questions, uh, just so you know that I probably won't have answers. Uh, and as long as you know that going in, uh, there's no disrespect intended in that. Um, feel free to ask a couple, and if I think we can get there, uh, then I'm happy to answer those. If not, uh, we do have work to do on behalf of our communities, and that's our primary focus uh, this evening. There are many specific figures about casualties out there. The sheriff, the sheriff Sampson, told me up as many as 20. Uh, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to set the record straight on that. Yeah, I, right now. I do appreciate that, and I know that there's been a lot of numbers out there. Uh, this is a very fluid situation, so the last thing I want to come up is give you a number and then three hours from now change that one direction or another. So I don't have firm numbers on that. Uh, and what I do, we'll be happy to share those uh, with you because it's an important piece of healing and it's an important piece of information for all of us to be aware of. Um, but I don't have a firm number on that. But at least 16, right? I think I just answered that question to say that I'm not gonna give you any specific numbers. Um, and there's been a lot of numbers all over the map uh, all evening. And I don't think that that's helpful. Um, because it doesn't help family members. It certainly doesn't help the community to see, well, they just said this and they said that. Um, so if you want accurate information, I'm prepared to give that to you when I have it. Uh, I don't have that right now. Does the suspect have any known criminal history with law enforcement? Is he, is he someone who's been on the radar of, of state police or local police to your knowledge? Well, Mr. Card, who we're speaking about right now, is a person of interest and a person of interest only, right? I'm not listing him as a suspect at this point, um, and we're not prepared to go into his background or anything else that we may be aware of. One more question. You know, I'm looking for one shooter, correct? 
we're looking for this person of interest right now, and, uh, and that's what we'll label uh, and list and speak about uh, at this particular moment. When we have additional information, I'm happy to share that. No, so thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, again, thank you for your time. And I know uh, Assistant City Manager uh, O'Malley will make uh, arrangements, I think, to move everybody out of the building. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. These, uh, these are our we are coming out of a press conference by Mike Shashak, who is a law enforcement spokesperson and personnel, talking about what we have seen tonight. We know that there have been, there's been a mass shooting that's happened in Lewiston, Maine. What we learned from that press conference tonight, that there is a person of interest who has been identified, Robert Card. He is armed and dangerous. They are labeling him as a person of interest. They are not saying a suspect tonight, but they are telling the public not to approach or contact this person. The car was located in Lisbon, about, what, seven miles away from Lewiston, Maine, and they have located that particular vehicle. There is a reunification location in place at a middle school in a neighboring town as well for those who have information or those who have questions about their loved ones they are searching for. They are asking the public's help and giving any information they have been forthcoming till now, but they are not addressing how many people may ultimately be included in that casualty number. He is not comfortable saying the number at this time. It's a very fluid situation. Joining me now, CNN Senior National Security Analyst and former Homeland Security official Juliet Kayyem. Also here is CNN Senior Law Enforcement Analyst and former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. Sadly, the three of us are here yet again talking about this unbelievable tragedy, and it is so fluid Juliet, let me begin with you. We've got information from John Miller. He's been reporting that the person of interest, Robert Card, is military reserves, a certified firearms and tactics instructor. Does that explain something to you about the number of victims we're hearing about? So I want to talk about the number. Um, in most instances, uh, law enforcement would probably have said at least a certain number, especially since we're reporting certain numbers of all news agencies are uh, totally quiet on that issue. I don't mm -hmm. want to make much of it. It's just unique. It may suggest that, you know, of the of the many injured we had, that the number is going to get higher uh, uh, because of the many injured that we have. Uh, the suspect or the person of interest, not called a suspect yet, uh, the training uh, suggests that with the right gun, this kind of damage, this kind of killing can be done. It also suggests that he knows how to plan mass killings. In other words, mm. he's, he's moving from place to place further away from what you might call a city from a lo location. And now in darkness, timing it perfectly, he's in the outer sides of, of, of uh, Lewiston. And he's now also reported to have been seen somewhere about 10 miles away. This is someone who knows how to plan things like this. So his kind of training is important. I just want to add one more thing for families in Maine. Uh, Bates College, you know, I, I hear from a lot of moms in my job, uh, uh, is under lockdown. Uh, these are obviously precautionary. They don't know where he is. Uh, two towns now under lockdown, at least one has to assume it's going to happen at least overnight. And the mention of a family unification is also a family notification place. That's yes. a euphemism is where people need to go. They will learn. Uh, they know that they can't find someone. And this is where they will learn the worst news of their lives, uh, that they have lost someone today. So we can never forget uh, that's, you know, that these are the processes by which people learn the news is family unification and notification 
uh, places. You know, I had a chance to speak with the president of Bates College this evening, um, Gary Jenkins, and he and I spoke and he said that they are busy, focused on the safety and security of their students and the campus. Of course, it is on lockdown, as you've described just now. And thinking about this is a a college town. They've got about 1,800 students as well to account for as small liberal arts. But I want to hone in on this point. Um, Andrew McCabe, that press conference he was very clear that he was identifying this person as a person of interest, did not want to call this person a suspect, did not want to go into whether there was anything known about a criminal background or how this person may or may not have been known to law enforcement. Why do you think there was that decision made? Well, that's that's hard to say at this point, Laura. I, I mean... We, we have, the three of us have uh, sat and watched these press conferences very closely. I cannot even count how many times now. Uh, it's an unbelievably sad um, part of our lives here in this country. But I, I have to say, I would not rank that press conference among the more informative ones. Yeah. Um, I think they're just being incredibly careful. Um, you know, they uh, not not even putting a general number on the number of fatalities. We've had a lot of numbers reported this evening already, yeah. some coming from very good sources, uh, one from the city manager. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure why they weren't willing to say as of this moment, this is what we think it is. It could change. Well, he did say, I mean, and to that point, he did say that it could change. And he was concerned, he said, about the possibility of that number and having to be held to that particular number in place. But why do you think, in terms of the investigation or the ongoing fluidity of this, is it irresponsible to provide that number or is it irresponsible not to have done so? I don't think it's irresponsible to provide it, especially in a time when in in this situation, you are relying on the public to help you identify this person. You're relying on the public to help you try to identify and locate his vehicle. They have been pretty forward leaning and pushing photographs out for that purpose, which I think is a great thing. So combined with that, it's it's, it's a little puzzling as to why they're being so reticent about these details. But however, with regard to calling him a person of interest rather than a suspect, it's a bit of a difference without a distinction. But nevertheless, it may reflect the fact that they don't have an absolute confirmed identity. They may have an eyewitness who, who identifies him from the photograph. They may have his name come back to that vehicle registration in one way or another. So my guess is they're pretty confident that's him. But for whatever reason, in an abundance of caution, they don't want to come out and say, this is our guy until they've confirmed it to some absolutely uh, uh, unimpeachable degree. I mean, Juliet, take a step back with us. Your your expertise in trying to think about and addressing, frankly, some of the worst case scenarios and anticipating it and just the, the idea of trying to wrap one's mind around how a search like this could begin, could go into place and be successful. What are the main things in terms of coordination Who are the law enforcement officers? Is it one community? Is it multiple cities that are coming together? Is the FBI, would they be involved in something like this already? Yes. Yes, all all of the above. So basically they've set up an incident command that will start with the local jurisdiction. We just saw them. I, um, um, uh, I agree it was not the most illuminating press conference because you do want the first of all the community is in lockdown. They know what's going on and the community uh, will be able to help identify 
uh, the gunmen. So you start with the incident command system. The good, the good thing about them, they're well tested and they're expandable. So you're going to go to local, then other local jurisdictions, then to the state of Maine, which has a very, very active uh, uh, state police system. And then now we've already known, I mean, this is my neighborhood, so to speak, where there's mutual aid compacts amongst the New England states. Uh, they, are, they are driving resources. That's on the law enforcement side. On the hospital side, we, we have some number, and it's a horrible number, whatever it is. You have lots of people also injured. Two main hospitals in the area, they are going to be overwhelmed relatively soon, um, if not already. So um, I've been monitoring, you know, this is the thing we do, you know, medical mm -hmm. uh, helicopters are coming in. They are, br they are either bringing doctors or they are bringing, taking patients out to Massachusetts, New Hampshire, uh, this area. Uh, so that's the, that's the two pieces. You're going to have the federal overlay because we do not know motive at this stage. Um, I know this community, it's not just Bates, Bates College. It is actually, people think of Maine as being very sort of, you know, um, uh, it is a predominantly white state. It has large immigrant communities. And uh, here there's a large Somalian community. So you're going to mm -hmm. want to look at the nexus of motivation. And that's going to begin as well. So all of the above, I want to put one other overlay. If it is true, in fact, that this person of interest, as John Miller is reporting, has a military background and is active um, uh, duty, so to speak, that he is uh, still aligned with the military in some way through the reserve system, you are going to have a whole system in place too. They're, they're figuring out who he is, what his background is, and all the information we've been uh, John has been able to get uh, is going to be relevant. So these systems are tested, unfortunately, uh, a lot in the United States. We know how they work. Uh, and the most important thing now is, of course, of the pool of people that are injured, how many can be saved by active medical procedures to get these patients to where they need to get right now to save their lives. And Angie, real quick, I mean, just thinking if this person's not found, obviously there is a ongoing security threat. Other communities could indeed be vulnerable to what has already happened and could be now um, vulnerable to what his, his plan, if there is one, could be. But in what Juliet just listed, all the different entities, now you add on top of that, if he is, in fact, this actual suspect, he's a person of interest, they're very clear on that. Who has the priority? Who has the command if you have all these different people. Andrew, you want to ask you about and talk about that after a quick break here, and we're going to come back to you in just a moment because that's the big question. With all the different entities at play, who's in control? Where is the head of the investigative team? We'll be right back. We're following the breaking news tonight out of Maine where a desperate manhunt for an armed suspect is going on right now. 22 people reported dead in multiple shootings. A person of interest has been identified by the name of Robert Card. We are back now with Juliet Kayam and Andrew McCabe. You know, we've been here before in the sense of covering these mass shootings. The fluidity is very obvious. We're going to get the most information we can up to speed and accurate. Andy, before the break, I asked you the question that Juliet had alluded to, which was with all the different law enforcement personnel who will be present, all the different, whether it's local, state, or federal, now you add on the military aspect of it. Our reporting says this is a military reservist. How does that rank in terms of who leads this investigation now? 
So it's an interesting question. I, I think, you know, first and foremost, we have a mass multiple homicide investigation going on in Lewiston. The Lewiston police, probably with the assistance, first and foremost of county officials are going to investigate that. Their focus right now is uh, processing that crime scene, collecting the evidence and returning the victims to their loved ones. At the same time, we have a manhunt going on for this person of interest. He's already uh, likely, well, we know he's uh, he's dropped his vehicle in Lisbon. So he's already out of Lewiston. He lives in Bowdoin. So he's probably heading out of the county. In all likelihood, the Maine State Police will, will oversee that effort, again, yeah. with the assistance of many other police entities, the FBI, federal, state, and local, uh, local police, and in all the mm-hmm. ca- towns that this guy might go. I mean, Juliet, this is in Maine, obviously very close to Canada. Is yes. the Canadians be alerted right now? Are they participating? Yes. Would that be expected? Yeah, so he's he's dumped a car. He probably, you know, chances are he's stolen another one. I mean, and, and someone may not know that their car is stolen. It's late at night. You might not know it until the next morning. Uh, chances are mm. he is, or high, chances are high that he is uh, heading north um, only because it's a, this part of Maine, it's more rural. If you go north, if he, if he goes um, east, he's heading towards Massachusetts, New York. Right. He probably doesn't want to do that. So uh, Canadian border and U.S. Border Patrol have incredibly rigorous lockdown procedures in terms of manhunts. Look, the, this, all borders are porous. We know that. But you have along the border, once again, I know this area well, you have the Maine State Police you have federal authorities, uh, and now you're probably going to get a Canadian overlay on the other wow. side of Can- Canadian police, just making sure, you know, does he dump the car on the U.S. side and try to get across on foot? And chances are he's not going to be, you know, he's not going to do it lawfully. He's going to try to get through the force. So all of these, you know, these are the things that are trained for and the expectation that you have a manhunt, but it is nighttime and it's yeah. dark. And, it's active. Uh, and so lots can happen in four or five hours until daylight when when it will be easier to spot someone like this. Juliet Kayam, Andrew McCabe, please stay with us. We have a lot more. We'll be right back with much more on our breaking news tonight. Twenty two people reported dead in multiple mass shootings in Lewiston, Maine. Police identifying a person of interest as this manhunt continues. This is CNN Breaking News. I'm Laura Coates and the tragic breaking news tonight. At least 22 people have been killed in multiple shootings in Lewiston, Maine. Dozens are injured. At this very moment, a manhunt is on the way for a person of interest seen on the screen. Police identifying him tonight is 40-year-old Robert Card, and they say he should be considered armed and dangerous. Approximately 6.56 this evening, uh, a couple of shooting incidents occurred here with multiple casualties in the city of Lewiston. And police are currently searching for a Robert R. Card, 4-4 of 1983 of Bowdoin. Card is considered armed and dangerous. He is a person of interest, however, and that's what we'll uh, label him at uh, moving forward until that changes. If people see him, they should not approach Card or make contact with him in any way. Let's talk now with CNN security correspondent Josh Campbell. Josh, I'm going to lean in really to your FBI chops as well because your experience is so vital right now. This is an ongoing manhunt. 
We do not know where this suspect is. We have not been told where he is. This is a very fluid situation. Everyone's trying to assess the casualties, the number of people injured, identify what has happened here. Talk to me about this identification of a person of interest. How significant is this now? Well, this is interesting because for a, a period of time that went by, authorities weren't releasing the name of the suspect mm-hmm. or any of the identifiers. They did release uh, that uh, still frame from uh, CCTV footage inside one of those locations where he allegedly opened fire. That was inside uh, that bowling alley. This photo, you can see him there with a uh, assault style rifle. You see uh, what's called a uh, uh, the magazine, which is a contraption in the weapon that holds ammunition. That's a large capacity magazine, meaning that this individual potentially had a lot of ammunition with him. We've also seen time and again in these instances, Laura, where suspects will bring additional rounds of ammunition. We know with that number of victims, at least 22 people who were killed, numerous others were injured. Uh, This is someone who appeared to uh, have been intent on causing mass loss of life. At this hour, we certainly don't know the motive, why he allegedly uh, targeted these two particular areas. But as you mentioned, this manhunt now underway. CNN is learning there are multiple agencies that are now involved. The local police as well as uh, the main police, uh, state police, and the federal government now involved as well. The FBI and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Uh, the ATF brings incredible resources to bear in order to try to identify a suspect based on the weapon itself. And so as that investigation continued, we now have that identification. Finally, I'll point out that again, at this hour, we don't yet know the motive, uh, but sources are telling our colleague John Miller that This suspect, who was a firearms instructor in the U.S. military, in the U.S. Army Reserve, had at some point uh, reported mental health issues, uh, allegedly indicating that uh, he was uh, hearing voices. Uh, He was apparently committed to some type of uh, uh, institution for assessment. And so a lot of questions at this hour about what happened after that period of assessment. Uh, Were there people in his orbit who may have seen additional lingering issues? He had allegedly made threats against a National Guard facility. And so still a lot of questions about the motive, but that brings us to where we are at this point in time, this massive manhunt with authorities fanning out across uh, the the New England area looking for Mm -hmm. the suspect. Of course, we've seen Laura, you and I have covered so many of these incidents. They typically will end in three possible ways, and that is the suspect uh, decides to take his own life. The suspect is engaged by law enforcement uh, uh, and and is taken into custody or killed or the suspect, um, you know, is eventually, you know, this manhunt continues. And so we're still waiting to obviously here, uh, uh, you know, see what happens here. Obviously, this is an area that has been in a state of lockdown and a state of fear. Authorities have asked residents around the area to shelter in place as this mm-hmm. manhunt continues, Laura. And a state of complete and total shock. No one thinks this is yeah. going to happen where they are. You're hearing about, we had uh, one person earlier on who was an eyewitness to being outside of the bowling alley, said that she saw children coming out of the bowling alley. It was some kind of a family night was happening as well. Her own daughter, a Girl Scout, in the car with her, trying to make sense of what she's seeing. I'm really interested in particular on the comment you made about the ATF's involvement. We're looking at those still frames at different points in time. You identified the clothing, those cargo pants, as one way that people will store additional ammunition. People have been focusing on the gun itself that's being used. When the ATF is involved, how are they going to be trying to identify and locate and track who that person is based on seeing the weapon? 
So the ATF specifically has incredible capabilities and resources uh, in order to gather intelligence from that weapon. Whenever you fire a, a rifle like this or any gun, the bullet comes out the end, but then the shell casing is ejected. And sadly, we've seen because of the level of gun violence in this country, the ATF has gotten really good at being able to look at those shell casings and try to identify the uh, individual mark. It's, it's somewhat like a fingerprint that a firing pen of a weapon leaves on that ammunition in order to try to track back. Uh, was this a weapon that, that authorities were aware of in order to try to track back the sale? That then helps oftentimes lead to the identity of the suspect. Now, that has all occurred, uh, all the background trying to gather information about this suspect. We know they've also identified a vehicle. Uh, all that would help and try to get through the identification. So they felt comfortable coming out, providing the name uh, of this suspect. And now at this point, it's really about trying to locate where he may be. There's the mm -hmm. physical search effort that is happening where you have assets both on the ground. We know that helicopters have also been brought in in order to try to scour the area that made much more difficult by the time of day at night. But also, uh, Laura, we've seen uh, time and again in these cases that authorities will literally go door to door along a particular route of travel looking for surveillance footage at resin residences, at businesses, and again, trying to identify where this suspect was traveling to. We know along uh, the, the freeways there are also license plate readers. And again, just trying to get a sense of where this individual might be. The last thing I'll point out now that they have indeed provided the identification of this suspect. That tells us that they're then able to try to identify relatives, to try to identify friends. We know because of, as we you know, were reporting earlier, the, the uh, potential mental health uh, issues that the suspect had allegedly had in the past. I'll pause real quickly to say, because this is so important, that we know the vast majority of people in this country who have mental health issues do not go on uh, uh, to uh, commit violence. So we don't want to stigmatize that. But this is important because the authorities would want to talk to this individual's loved ones to try to determine, well, what is his state of mind? Has he gone through individual episodes and then, you know, moves into a different state of mind? Because again, if they mm -hmm. actually encounter this suspect, they want a peaceful resolution. But obviously, with him now accused of killing at least 22 people and having still presumably that high powered assault style rifle, authorities would certainly be on edge. But they're hoping to you know, get this peaceful resolution. They first have to find him, but they're going to try to gather as much as they can about this individual and his state of mind uh, as yeah. they work to try to locate him and apprehend him. Every morsel of information that could get insight yeah. to the law enforcement could be invaluable here. Josh, please stick yeah. around. Keep giving us the information that we are really eager to have. I have now former Baltimore Police Commissioner Michael Harrison, who is with us tonight. And one of the things that Josh was mentioning was about all the different areas you're going to be looking for and trying to dig into this person's past. We should obviously mention social media might be a place as well or any notion of a manifesto or anything like that. Let me ask you about how wide of a net would be cast to try to find this particular person of interest. Well, thank you for having me. Let me first offer my condolences to all of the victims of this horrific incident. I think uh, the, the net is pretty wide. It could be nationally or internationally, considering how close to Canada uh, this location is. Uh, it's going to be local, state, federal resources all working together in coordinating, communicating, and collaborating to figure out, number one, you know, we kind of know who this person is, but where has he been? What has he done? What has he learned? Uh, I am very concerned. I've heard the previous commentators over the last couple of hours talk about his offensive ability to create harm and damage and death now, but that training would also lead him to anticipate the police approach. 
the tactics that police would use to try to track him and apprehend him, which would lend him to probably have some measure of ability in defensive maneuver and how to evade police and his evasive maneuvers. And now that it is dark, that further exacerbates this, this problem. And so I think uh, everything is on the table, especially a digital profile of social media, looking at what he may have logged into, who he may have communicated with, how far back does that communication go, and who would have inspired him to do this if anybody else may be included in, in his planning of this, because this took some planning. Yeah, so true. And just thinking about the distance, these are not places that are kitty corner to one another. It required them to, him to travel from point A to point B to point C, perhaps point D, a very important point. And that notion of not only being able to evade, but could be still proactive in trying to commit additional crimes. This is a person of interest. The commissioner was very clear. They're not calling this person a suspect at this time. But we have seen pictures now of the shooter. We have seen pictures of the person of interest, excuse me. We've seen pictures of the car as well. When you have that combination, and this is being provided by law enforcement, what can you glean from what you're seeing right now? Well, I have to join the previous commentators in believing that this has the three possible outcomes. Uh, surrender, a confrontation, violent confrontation with law enforcement, and our self-inflicted wound that could, that could possibly end his own life. Uh, mm. But I'm afraid that in looking at the photo, I heard John Miller talking earlier about the tactical clothing he was wearing, the likelihood that he had more ammunition. He had enough ammunition to commit the high number of fatalities and the high number of uh, injuries that some may even lead to more fatalities. I would think he has enough ammunition to do that again, and we should anticipate that. So the, the police approach is very important. This should be very systematic. It should be very, and it will be, very carefully planned and coordinated by local, state, and federal agencies going far beyond this one city and maybe even the state of Maine uh, but this could last for days on end. We hope it doesn't, but we should be prepared for this to last on days on end because we know that this person likely has the skill set to survive and to sustain himself through a protracted event that could last beyond one, one news cycle or one police tour of duty. You know, this is something that we will be watching closely. I will mention one additional point that was raised by the Commissioner of Public Safety, Mike Shawshuck, at that press conference we heard just a few moments ago, and that was he would not rule out or did not say whether they believed this was one person of interest or others were involved. It seemed that they were having a single focus on this person of interest, which perhaps might give comfort to people, but this investigation continues and the manhunt is underway. Everyone stand by, because it's a very urgent manhunt that's underway right now for all the reasons we've described tonight after a very tragic night in Lewiston, Maine. This is CNN's special live coverage. We have more on the breaking news tonight out of Maine. City officials telling us that at least 22 people have been killed in two separate mass shootings, one at a restaurant and another at a bowling alley. There's a massive manhunt underway right now for a person of interest who is named Robert Card. Andrew McCabe is back with me now. 
Andy, you know, when you look at what's happening right now, and this is in Maine, so one of the first questions people will ask is whether a person was known to authorities. We have learned from John Miller this person was a military reservist. But the gun laws and the type of weapon that is being used here, that's the second question. What are the gun laws in Maine? Was the weapon that you're seeing in any of these still photos able to be lawfully used in that state? Obviously not for criminal purposes, though. That's right. But it, it's entirely likely that the weapon that you see in those photos uh, is can be lawfully uh, owned in the state of Maine. The weapon is likely an AR-15 or a similar variant uh, high-powered uh, assault-style weapon. Um, Maine does not have a uh, any any uh, additional background check requirements beyond those federal requirements that are imposed upon federally licensed firearms dealers. Maine also does not have a what we refer to as a red flag law or or some states call it an extreme risk law. Those laws enable family members or sometimes law enforcement to take firearms away from people who seem to be in extreme risk of hurting themselves or others. For instance, if this person of interest was actually recently um, uh, in a psychiatric facility undergoing evaluation, that's the sort of situation that could give rise to someone um, working under a red flag law to remove that person's guns for some period of time. Maine does not have those laws, so that couldn't have happened here. Um, and we also know that Maine does not have a concealed carry permit requirement, which basically means if you have lawfully purchased a firearm, a handgun or, or long gun, it's harder to conceal a long gun, but if you have a handgun, you can carry that uh, handgun without a special permit to do so. So it's a it's um, a pretty easy state, it seems, to purchase and uh, use firearms. Now, we know Maine also has a long history of shooting sports and hunting and outdoor. Uh, there's a very strong outdoor culture in Maine. So guns are fairly prevalent. I think some of the witnesses, a few of the witnesses that we've identified on this air this evening, some of them mentioned that as soon as they heard the shelter in place rule, they grabbed their handguns yeah. or rifles and loaded those weapons. So it's uh, it's a part of the culture in Maine. Juliet, I know you wanted to weigh in. You have something to add also on these laws, as Andrew McCabe has outlined, what's not there, perhaps one of the most striking that people may look at is the red flag laws that are not available in Maine, particularly given the reporting that this person has um, had some sort of mental health evaluation perhaps earlier this year over a multi-week period. What's your thought on all this? Both I think we, we're not hearing, there we go. We're, we weren't hearing you at first. Go ahead, repeat that again. Yeah, so Maine has the most, some of the most permissive laws when it comes to gun ownership, acquisition, no background checks, no red flag laws. It is, it is essentially sort of akin to Texas. And, and part of that is exactly as Andy was saying, sort of that a culture of, of guns, which is um, often related to hunting. And so you're, you're, we are unlikely to um, find that he unlawfully had these weapons. These are lawfully purchased weapons or allowed to be purchased in Maine. Remember also his background is he is a, we, we likely, uh, we know some of his background that he is a firearms instructor type. Mm -hmm. He's going to be familiar with these guns. He's going to be familiar with how to kill as many people as possible without getting shot himself. 
and uh, the the and it just goes to sort of you know the narrative that we often think well a, a more ar that is often told that a more armed culture will be safer. I think Maine is unfortunately sort of a, an example now where even people who had guns, you're just not able to anticipate or protect yourself when you're up against the, this kind of weaponry that just kills so quickly. That is why so many people in law enforcement mm. are against these kinds of rifles. It, is, it, is, it isn't guns generally, although some, you know, some people would like more restrictions. It is, it is a gun that, that, that two things cannot happen. One is you cannot protect the public. They are simply, if you're there, you are, and if you're shot, you're likely to be killed. There are you know, very few injuries in these cases. Uh, and that is, even if you are armed, it is very hard to, uh, to react because the uh, gun works so quickly. The other is, and we saw this today, is, is that the capacity for law enforcement to stop it is almost minimal because all the killer needs is two, three, four minutes. He's back in his car. He's already killed however many people and now on to the next place which law enforcement mm. is now all rushing in the first place so there's going to be a, a discussion about the gun laws in Maine about his access to the gun laws they there ought to be a discussion this isn't political it's just sort of here's a horrible horrible day what what can we do to minimize the number of people who are dead today. I mean, this is just like, you know, I mean, let's just, whatever the number is, it's it's one too many. Um, mm. But we think, you know, the numbers that we are hearing are are close to 20 right now. This is not, this. we should be having this discussion simply because most nations don't, don't all nations, no nations have um, killings like this. Well, Juliet, it strikes me at least on two fronts. One, about what the law enforcement who are trying to hone in and identify and find this person's location and, and, and bring him into custody, what they're up against, that that's the kind of weapon that he, as a person of interest, may likely have. The second part is the trauma you talk about. And I'm going to go there next. I want to turn to the hospitals and the trauma. But let's listen live. The mayor is speaking. Good. You know, something like this doesn't just get solved overnight. But uh, we got a really strong community. We've overcome a lot, and we'll overcome this. Jason, what's the scene like in there right now? Just there? Yeah. Relief. It's really relief. You know, if you think about it, I mean, this is this is a happier place right now in the entire area. This is a reunification center where people, you know, witnesses saw traumatic events are coming together with their family and loved ones who were worried to death about them, and they're coming together, so it is happy. But on the flip side of the happiness, what you're seeing is you're seeing the, the turmoil and the trauma that they're going through, especially the witnesses. And that, unless you've been there, you can't really understand, you can't really describe, frankly, um, other than you can feel empathy for them. And that's what we're going to try to do here. Where were the witnesses be between the events and, and now when they were brought? They were an undisclosed location, uh, centralized, safe location. We brought them there and, and obviously police did too as we're cleaning the scene. It's going to be a long process to clear the scenes. Um, but then. You know, we brought them once everything was settled. We can bring them back here safely. And obviously, all the statements were taken and so forth. That needs to be that needs to happen. So, I mean, investigation is investigation. And that's a paramount importance at this time. Uh, Mayor, for, forgive me for asking. Um, you know, in in other mass shooting incidents in other parts of the country, the reunification point has sometimes been a moment where a loved one comes to the tragic realization that their relative didn't make it. Yes. Has, have any of those interactions taken place here tonight? Yes. I'll just leave it at that.
Um, what, what sort of the process have, have have the hospital workers been working to connect more and more people throughout the night? I haven't talked with the hospital directors or emergency room staff. They're extremely busy and we all need to respect that. Okay. Uh, they are working with known victims right now, whether it be casualties or fatalities, and they're going to work through that process, the appropriate guidance, um, mental health. Uh, support networks that we have. We actually have uh, trained professionals here from the state police as well as local uh, churches that are trained in crisis response that are actually helping people through this. How long can we expect this center to be open? Until it's done. Thank Anything you, else? Thanks, Jason. Okay. No. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mayor. Lewis. You were just Inside? hearing yeah. from the mayor of Auburn, Maine, Jason Levesque. And remember, we learned earlier today from the Commissioner of Public Safety in Lewiston, um, uh, Maine, that Auburn Middle School was going to be the location of a reunification center for families who were looking to find their loved ones who had lost contact. We've learned tonight from that mayor of Auburn that that, that location is open, it will remain open, and there have already been families who have, who have learned the fate of their loved ones, including that they had died and were killed in this incident. They're talking about churches and other entities as crisis responders and trained to try to help those families. And that empathy is what they're trying to provide for those families, as well as get witness statements from people who were involved. CNN law enforcement contributor and retired FBI supervisory special agent Steve Moore is with us right now. Steve, we've learned, sadly, for some people who are hoping to reunify have now learned a, the fate of their loved ones and that they did not make it through this horrible circumstance. Tell me about what this family reunification process would be like at a center like this. This can be extremely uh, traumatizing for everybody involved uh, because a bunch of the people are getting tremendous news and they're seeing... Uh, they're having reunions, tearful reunions and thanking God out loud. And some people are showing up and getting the worst possible news uh, that they could ever imagine. Uh, the cases that I've been involved with, uh, it's almost been traumatizing to be at the Unification Center. Uh, it's best to try and separate, uh, and I hope they've done this, separate it from a reunification center and then identify those people who are showing up still looking for people that maybe authorities know are not going to be found there. It's just unbelievable to think about the waiting, the concern, the wondering, only to have what you said, that moment of confusion and, and despair you know, the process that he's speaking about, though, this is, again, that was the mayor of Auburn. This happened, the mass shootings happened in Lewiston, Maine. They had that Auburn Middle School as one of those centers. The mayor spoke about shelter-in-place conditions even for his community. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me that they've, they've set the perimeter out, uh, the fugitive perimeter or the, uh, the search perimeter out quite a ways, uh, which to me means... Um, they don't really have a clue uh, or a, a strong clue as to where he was or last uh, or where he is now. Uh, they're probably trying to determine whether he had any assistance, a second vehicle, if uh, they're looking to see if any vehicles were stolen in the area. Um, you have to plan on worst case that this person got out in a vehicle uh, and could be in those areas. Um, but you also have to be pragmatic and say, what are the odds um, 
that he actually did have another vehicle. Um, and then you've got the problem of Lewiston and uh, Lisbon and all these areas being just surrounded by forest. And um, this is a nightmare because if this person is, as as we've been hearing, a trained military uh uh, operative, somebody who taught firearms, then they are going to make clever decisions about what would be in their best interest. And if this person has decided, to, we never know, as, as we've heard so many times, is this person going to turn themselves in? Is this person going to take their own lives, life? Or are they going to go into the woods, hunker down and wait for the police to get to them? I, I, I think right now, uh, you're at a very dangerous position. I think you, uh, I wouldn't send people into those woods tonight. Um, I would uh, set up a large perimeter, block off roads and uh, uh, try it in the daylight. Which means that there is time and perhaps opportunity for yet another community to be vulnerable. This is a community of Lewiston that's not too far away from the most, I think, populous part of Maine, Portland as well, and you wonder just how far out that perimeter really is going to go in the search for this suspect or this person of interest, as they have been very clear to identify tonight. Steve, thank you so much. We'll continue to lean on your insight. I want to go next, though, to the hospitals. Let's talk about the emergency trauma that is happening inside of there. This is the person of interest they have identified on your screen. Stay with us. Our special coverage continues tonight out of Lewiston, Maine, where officials are telling CNN that at least 22 people have been killed at a restaurant and also a bowling alley. And a person of interest is on the loose. He's identified as the person on your screen right now. Joining me now is active shooter expert Chris Grolneck. Chris, thank you for being here. We've been seeing these still images all night long of the person that they believe is a person of interest or not yet calling him a suspect. I'm watching the clothing. I'm looking at the holding of the gun. Um, tell me what you are gleaning from these footage you're actually seeing. Uh, thank you for having me. And I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. Mm. I, I believe I look at this from two different uh, vantage points. One is from the prevention standpoint of what could have been done to prevent this. And obviously from the second, from the response standpoint. And I believe a lot of your audience, which I've spoken to before on several times, on several occasions, understands that, you, you know, these incidents, when the police are coming and they're on their way, they're responding to the incident already in progress. And just like what your other guest has said, there's very little you can do once the shooting starts. And you have to take the path that will get you to the, the place you want to go. What does that mean? Uh, few understand, but with technology that's uh, available now, there's warning signs for gun detection that can say there's a gun on premise. So I'm looking at what type of cameras are in the three different locations. And while they look a little dis uh, distorted, if you will, from the map point of view, they may be very relevant to where um, he targeted. And I would also look at the amount of training that he has for someone to have that type of adrenaline dump into their body, say a viewer that's been in the a near car crash, you can barely move, you, you grab your steering wheel. This person had the wherewithal in the mind to actually get back in their vehicle and then drive to another location and then another location and then for a fourth time evade and now they're on the run. So whether that's a, a mental health issue 
or beyond or a lot of experience, uh, we don't know because we don't know the background and the purpose mm -hmm. of interest is how it's stated. I would look to see um, how this is going to unfold and, you know, just hope, pray for the best for the police because they have a monumental task ahead of them. Chris, I want to just go back. There was a picture that we were showing of him and it was highlighting his face and his body as he was actually holding the weapon. I don't know if you're able to see it, but he is poised to shoot. He is looking straight ahead. His hands are in position. One is underneath the barrel of the weapon, the other um, on the trigger. He's looking over what appears to be some kind of maybe a scope, if I'm looking at this correctly. He's looking ahead <coughs> at potential targets. What does that tell you? It tells me he knows how to handle the firearm. Um, I believe uh, Director McCabe said uh, that the the type of weapon, we believe it to be an AR-15, and that ha that is some kind of optic. I don't think it's a scope. I think it's a red, op optic. red dot optic. Okay. And, what's, um, and what does that and mean, the, by the way, for people who don't know about guns, I'm at, about that, what does that mean, an optic versus a scope? Sure. Well, we're, sure. So we're used to a scope magnifying the picture that we're looking at before we shoot, and a lot of people would uh, consider that on hunting rifles where you have a scope. A red dot or some type of optic is called a faster pickup for your um, eye. So where you pick the weapon up and you see the dot, the dot is going to be on the place where the muzzle is going to be aimed. And uh, for targets and uh, competition shooting, they use it quite a bit. So that type mm. of optic, if you will, it might it may not magnify the picture. In other words, the viewer won't be able to see it with a magnification, but the dot could magnify the, the background to actually help you... Um, find another target it's called target discrimination so um you know terrible situation to talk about target discrimination when there's yeah. so many victims and so many people yeah. shot and i would just go back to the his handling of the weapon shows some type of occupational pr proficiency um most people especially people without training uh stand still their posture is not correct they don't know how to hold the weapon when it fires they lean back the pictures that i've seen show him leaning into it, moving as he's walking on a tightrope and being very deliberate in his steps and his actions to include his hand movement, which is uh, functional for the weapon. And we're, I'm looking, of course, and we in the photo that we're seeing, he's at a bowling <coughs> alley. We've heard from eyewitnesses, they saw children running out of this bowling alley. It could have potentially had many children inside. This is not going to a gun range. This is not going to a place where perhaps he would believe he could encounter people who could respond. These are essentially soft targets. What do you make of that? Well, tragically, I, I've studied these things since uh, 2007. I was in an active shooter in 2010, and I wrote my mm. master's thesis on the phenomenon of active shooters. And tragically, a lot of these people, they don't wake up one day and become an active shooter. You know, I heard the background, and I won't elaborate on what his mental health state is, but I will tell you the FBI tells us that less than 25% of active shooters have a mental health diagnosis. The key word there is diagnosis because most don't get help. So the people that call for gun control, I think, you know, I, I can agree and I can understand where they're coming from. The people that call for mental health uh, work, I can agree, I understand where they're coming from, but I think there has to be the third tier of the realism. There's over 400 million firearms in the United States. Less than 550 have been involved in active shooters. That is by, that is 550 too many, and I would not disagree at all. But with the condition and the problem that we have right now, we continue to come back to the same debates, whether it's the training, the firearms, the laws, uh, the mental health and the behavior. 
This person had a vision of what they wanted to do, whether it was a copycat, whether they, th this is why we don't say their names traditionally, because we're not trying to glorify them and we don't want to put them on a plateau where somebody wants to outdo them or they want to outdo someone else. And I am sure when this manifesto comes out, we're going to know this has been planned, orchestrated, and in their mind, it made sense. So I'm of the opinion all active shooters have some type of mental health diagnosis because what we would agree on, I believe, is no sane person would go to a bowling alley where there's children and fire. So he was somehow either connected to the location or knew the location. And if the reporting is accurate that he was possibly laid off from a location near there, Maybe he was targeting people from the work, you know, where it's a workplace spillover. And I want to be very careful because I don't want to mistake semantics uh, for a victim that they don't care what you call it. Their their loved one is dead. Um, and I, I think we have to be very careful. And I would applaud the last guest that was speaking about the reunification programs. Yes. Those are the hardest things. They're the hardest things to look at, to do, to plan. And um, from what all the guests have said uh, on scene, it's going very well. I, I applaud that. And um, I think everybody's doing an outstanding job. The reporting has been spot on. And I just want to um, say also, I wish it wasn't. I wish it was poor reporting. I wish we didn't know the questions to ask. I wish there weren't guests that knew what they were talking about because my whole mission in life now, you know, I've retired and I, I've come back. I started yeah. the Active Shooter Prevention Project and that's not a plug. Please don't call me. I don't capitalize on these things. What I'm saying is, we can prevent them, okay? We, we know what happens after these things happen from zero to eight minutes, and then they're over. The police wow. cannot get there until eight minutes. So what? why shouldn't we shore up that first eight minutes? And I believe technology is the way to do that. I'm not selling anything. I'm just telling you, there's a way to prevent them. We just have to get creative and do it. Chris, thank you so much. I'm, I'm going to keep thinking about that optic you're talking about and the red dots and the posture of the person who's of interest, his feet seeming to be walking as if he's continuing along on what he is doing with that gun. Really important to hear your perspective. Thank you so much. And everyone out there, I mean, there are more than 50 people, more than 50 people who are also hurt tonight and hospitals are taking them in. We're going to go there next. Stay with us. Our special coverage continues tonight out of Maine, where 22 people are reported dead after two mass shootings. More than 50 others are hurt. I want to bring in Dr. James Phillips, Associate Professor and Chief of Disaster Medicine at George Washington University Hospital. Doctor, it is an unbelievable scene that we are learning about and hearing about the number of people who are injured, the weapon that was likely used, a person of interest. Take me behind the scenes of what happens at a hospital when you've got this number of people, potentially 50, who have been injured. Thanks for uh, having me on, Lauren, again. I'm, I'm uh, echoing what your last guest said. I'm sorry that it has to be under these circumstances. Uh, but I do appreciate you asking these important questions about how we approach this uh, from a hospital standpoint and from a healthcare system standpoint. You know, um, I don't want to speculate on the number of victims that, that the hospitals are caring for because we don't know. And in the, in the fog of war as it is, these, these numbers will change. Uh, but what we can be certain about it is that there are a number of patients that, can, that are overwhelming the medical system as it, as it exists. 
Um, you know, this area of Maine has a major medical center there that is a American College of Surgeons trauma center. But no matter how good or how busy they are uh, receiving uh, that number of victims, even half of that number of victims with high caliber weapon wounds uh, is a true disaster where the amount of patient needs far exceeds what your resources are uh, available. They're going to be reaching out to help to uh, not only transfer patients to other trauma centers that can accept patients to non-trauma centers that can help. They're going to be um, calling in their staff from home. Uh, and most people are going to probably self-respond to the, to the hospital as it is. When, when we see a disaster like this or a mass casualty incident, no matter the cause, we think of it in terms of, of three major things. We think about space, staff, and supplies. And those medical centers that are caring for these victims right now are overwhelmed and they're having the worst day that they've ever had. And they need, they need components of each of those things. They need trauma surgeons, they need emergency physicians, uh, and they need nurses. Um, they need the supplies that are there to help alleviate the bleeding. And they need operating rooms where they can provide damage control surgery for those that, are, that have survived uh, and to try to get to the next uh, shooting victim and potentially go back to the OR the next day to try to complete that surgery. And, and they, need, they need support more than anything. They're, um, these, these physicians and nurses are experiencing the single worst day of their lives. And it's something we all think about. I just finished my shift in the emergency department an hour ago. And there's not a single day when we are in the emergency department where we, uh, where we don't know that that's a possibility that, that, uh, that a major shooting can take place for us. It's the primary disaster that we prepare for in the United States now. It's unbelievable to think about what is at stake here. And as you say, the, the overwhelming nature of what might be happening. Um, you described the space, the staffing, the supplies. Obviously, with a high caliber weapon that may have been used, there would be significant blood loss. I would assume you would need blood as well in terms of people being able to what they can use and supply. How do you prioritize that? That's going to be a consideration when you're talking about the victims that might be coming in. What is the process of identifying the order in which you treat and address? Because I can only imagine what the wounds would be like. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a fantastic question, and it and it deals with the concept of triage, which is French for meaning to sort. The first bit of sorting will take place on the scenes of these of what I believe are just two two focal areas where the shootings took place, and the first concept is that EMS will set up an ability to triage patients based on their severity of injuries at the scene. But what we know from reality is those systems are are um, are, are minimally effective. Uh, if you look at what happened in Las Vegas, people. People don't wait for an ambulance to go to the hospital. They get in a vehicle, they call Uber and Lyft. That happened in Vegas. They get in the back of police cars and pickup trucks and they self uh, transport themselves to these hospitals that may or may not be capable of taking care of them. So when they arrive there at the hospital, either by ambulance or by private vehicle, that's when we repeat that triage with usually an, an advanced medical provider who's out there. And we try to sort them into categories based on the severity of their injuries uh, based on our, our, our career experience. And we try to put them into categories of green, yellow, and red. And that's, that's self-obvious. The, the red patients are the patients who are expected to deteriorate and have a bad outcome if they don't get to the operating room, get those blood transfusions, get that stabilization that's necessary right now. Patients in that yellow category are patients that can probably wait a few hours, maybe not quite critical, but at risk of deteriorating. And we want to keep a constant eye on them to make sure they don't become a red patient while they're waiting for care. 
And then those in the green category are typically what we would call walking wounded, patients that aren't having massive blood loss, their vital signs are reasonable, their injuries don't require immediate care. And we try to sort them as well, being mindful that anybody can switch between those categories at any time. And now it's the job of the emergency physicians and the trauma surgeons to determine who needs to go to the operating room right now and for what procedure. And the worst thing possible is that there's going to be victims that show up that may not be salvageable. They may have wounds that are not compatible with life. And the hardest decision that any surgeon or, or physician is going to have to make is to have that patient there alive, but know that they're not salvageable. And we need to save those resources, those operating rooms for patients that have a better chance of living. And that's got to be the most difficult decision that a physician would have to make. And I, I hope that they're not having to make those decisions tonight. It is just my heart is in my stomach as I'm hearing you describe that triage, the sorting process, the judgment calls that need to be made. And, and it, I keep going back to what you said earlier, that the number one disaster preparedness that you're trying to do is in preparation for mass shootings in this country. That's just unbelievable yeah. to think about, doctor. It is. You know, I, I was in college when I was watching Columbine happen on TV. Um, I'm from Oklahoma City, where my dad was one of the first firefighters in the Murrah building after the bombing. And um, I was in Boston uh, doing my training during the marathon bombing. We think of all the different hazards that can lead to mass casualty incidents, earthquakes, tornadoes, let alone the man-made things. But without question, the thing that weighs on our minds the most right now, the thing that can happen in any community that's a hazard for every place in America right now is a mass shooting. Dr. James Phillips, thank you so much for what you do. I'm so appreciative of how you've broken it down. And we are thinking about what everyone has to go through now at those hospitals, the space, the staffing, the supplies, the victims. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next, I'm going to speak with a man who was near the scene. And we'll talk with the mayor who is leading that family reunification center out of Auburn. Stand by. We have more on our breaking news out of Maine and the two mass shootings there. Just moments ago, I talked with a man who lives near the scene. Listen. A lot of anger that it was happening in the community because uh, Mainers were much better than this. Um, and, uh, you know, it's this, you've had these interviews with people all over the country before in a mass shooting. You, you just can't believe it's going to happen in your hometown and, and here we are. I got helicopters flying over my house with searchlights and it, it's unreal. What are you hearing and seeing tonight? You said you have the helicopters. Did you hear, you're only a, a very short, one block away from the bowling alley. Did you hear gunshots tonight or anything? When I got home, <clears throat> we locked down and I loaded my rifle and, and, uh, and our, our handgun. So I was busy doing that. I, I walked out on the deck for a short time, thought I heard uh, rat-a-tat uh, in the distance. But I think mostly what I've been hearing, honestly, is sirens. Uh, like I said, the helicopters flying flying above. We, we have a view of Main Street. So I just saw police car after police car after police car flying by and then ambulances going to the hospital. Do you have a sense of how many ambulances you saw leaving that bowling alley? 
I only saw, uh, I didn't see them leave the bowling alley, but they were, they were coming from that direction. And I would, mm. there were at least two, uh, as far as police cars, they had to be a dozen or more. I mean, there was, there was quite a, quite a bunch of law enforcement, uh, officers heading that way. Next, I'm going to speak with the mayor in the nearby town, the town that is leading the center where families are trying to reunite and possibly learning about the fate of their loved ones. Stand by. This is CNN Breaking News. I'm Laura Coates. There's another tragic night in America after another mass shooting. 22 people reported dead in multiple shootings in Lewiston, Maine. Sources telling CNN that 50 to 60 people are reported injured, though it's unclear how many are injured due to gunfire. The police have identified 40-year-old Robert Card as a person of interest in the shooting. He is described as a certified firearms instructor and a member of the U.S. Army Reserves. Law enforcement officials are saying in Maine that they also say that he recently reported mental health issues, including hearing voices, and made threats to shoot up a National Guard base in Saco, Maine. They warned that he should be considered armed and dangerous. There is right now a very intensive manhunt that is underway. Police are asking residents to shelter in place. Police are currently searching for a Robert R. Card, 4-4-1983 of Bowdoin. Card is considered armed and dangerous. He is a person of interest, however, and that's what we'll uh, label him at uh, moving forward until that changes. If people see him, they should not approach Card or make contact with him in any way. Joining me now, the mayor of Auburn, Maine, um, Jason Levesque. Remember, Auburn Middle School is the location of the reunification center identified by that commissioner of public safety at that press conference just a little while ago. Mayor, thank you for joining us tonight. This is an unbelievable tragedy that's unfolding. What can you tell us about that reunification center tonight? What are you hearing from members of your community? Um, well, you think, thank you uh, for those well wishes and having me on. I mean, we're hearing a lot, obviously. Um, it's a very trying, emotional time here for all mm-hmm. of us. I'm um, seeing people that I've known for years coming in. Uh, but thankfully, this is a reunification. So... There's a lot of pauses, a lot of happiness coming out of this for what it's worth. Um, so, it, but there's a lot of horror stories too. But I think more telling is what you don't hear. And that's the silence coming from people that were there witnessing everything. You, the idea of there being some joy in the reunification. Then you have, of course, the bittersweetness of those who are waiting to hear about what happened to their loved ones. You, you recognize members of the community? Are you seeing anyone that is learning the fate of their loved ones? Yes, I am. I am. Um, and uh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard oh. for them, obviously. Uh, it's hard for our entire community. I mean, you know, Auburn and Lewiston are side by side. Uh, we're, a river separates us. Combined, our population is around 60,000. You can't help but not knowing people who know someone. So this is going to impact every corner of our community. Are they saying, the witnesses tonight who are at the center, at the center, are they saying what happened in the bowling alley or, or the restaurant? They are. I'm talking with a few of them. Um, you know, and it's really, again, it's, it's almost discombobulated. It's pieces. And, you know, I, there's a, 
a gentleman I just talked with playing cornhole, and he goes, oh, I heard a, a couple pops and another couple pops, and I didn't think anything of it. It's Halloween. Huh. And uh, then he started seeing everybody scream and move, and, you know, that's that was that piece of that of that evening for him and, and his and his site. Thankfully, he was fine. So we're happy for him. And you must have others who are describing even seeing things up close. Are you hearing from people who were eyewitnesses to those who were killed? Yes, I am. But some of those mm. things shouldn't be shared. It must be very traumatic, Mayor to think about how you began your day as the members of the community began their day, their evenings, and where we are right now, it's, it's not lost on me that this center is a middle school and we're learning that children were present at that bowling alley at the very least. Are children at the reunification center as well? Uh, there was a couple, yes, um, with their parents, thankfully. Uh, oh. So that was very smooth for them. I mean, this as smooth as smooth can be. I mean, everything here is traumatic. So you have to put it in kind of perspective, I suppose, and different levels of trauma. Um, there was, you know, there there were some youth that were injured. I will say that. And mm-hmm. um, hopefully we'll find out more as the night and the day goes on. Do you, can you give me a sense of the, of the ages of the people who were present at that bowling alley? Yeah, uh, a sense. Anywhere from probably 12 to 90 and everywhere in between. When you're hearing the, the people who are going to the center, can you tell me when they're going, are people going there on the one hand to get information? Are they um, are part of a collective grieving process of what has happened and, and, the, and the trauma of it all? It's looking for that community. Who are you finding at this center? Well, I mean, we're really finding it's very, I mean, we're doing a really well, a good job, if you would, organizing everything and making okay. sure that, you know, communication lines are open um, and they're consistent. And so when they're coming in here, you know, we have shock trauma specialists on staff. We have members of our religious community here as well, providing counseling and support. Um, and but it's really it's in, it's out. It's, you know, kind of relief, if you would. And then go home, go to bed. Tomorrow's another day and we got to move on. We have to deal with healing on an individual mm-hmm. level as well as a community level. And that's going to start starting now, but it's really going to start tomorrow. In so many ways, Mayor, I, the adrenaline that you and your community are running on um, is probably guiding a lot of what's happening right now. And there is the realization as it settles in that this happened outside of your community. Of the, of the younger people who were injured, how did you know they were injured? Did some come in or you were told this? I talked to one of I talked to his grandfather, actually, who was mm. there um, with him. And, um, and I know this family. And uh, it's a good family. Thing is, you know what? This is Maine. This is central Maine. We're, we persevere. We can, we can take a lot. We're going to get through this. And we're going to get through this together. I think that's an important thing. Um, so we're going to really focus in on that here in the next couple of days. Uh, we're going to hug the people that need to be hugged. Absolutely. And, uh, we're going to rally around it. We're going to come out better. We're going to come out a stronger, more unified community. And we're going to mourn our loss. And we're going to do it together as a family. That sense of community is, is so important at a time like this and, and any other time. I am curious of people who might not know Central Maine very well or your community of Auburn in particular. Is there a medical facility in your town? Or if it's Absolutely. not, are there, is there a closer one? Where are people going? 
you know, thankfully we have a Central Maine Medical Center, which is, mm -hmm. uh, they have a great trauma unit. Uh, they were, I would say, a mile away from the incidences, maybe two. So they're well prepared. They were the, the main triage place. And we also, within 30 minutes, have, you know, Maine Medical Center in Portland. We have, um, you know, Maine General in Augusta, another 30 minutes away. And we also have a very extensive life flight operation, too. So we can helo folks around. Uh, very quickly if they need urgent care. And they have been active tonight. It's a Wednesday night in, um, in, in your community. Was there a special event happening at the bowling alley or the restaurant where there would have been more people than normal? It's a normal Wednesday. So there just were just kids normal. who were there. Wow. There's just kids bowling in a bowling league, you know, when before you they go to bed and go, you know, get up for school tomorrow. tomorrow. It's a normal day. There's a police presence, obviously, looking for this person of interest. How looped in have you been, and, and what information has, have they provided for you, for members of your community, to aid in the capture of this person? Uh, we have constant communication going on with the community right now, obviously, through the media, through our own municipal communication tool, 911, um, you know, not notifications. We have pictures. We have names. We have areas uh, we're working, and it's just not just Auburn or Lewiston. We have law enforcement uh, officials from all over the state right now, uh, including national assets, too. So staying looped in as much as I need to be looped in on this one, I think our, our first priority right now, mine is making sure people are reunified, making sure that the mourning process can happen. I have full faith and trust in our law enforcement to bring him to justice very swiftly and decisively. Mayor Levesque, thank you so much for being here. I know you, you, you don't want to get ahead of what the families are going through. The mommy and me, honestly, has just got to ask, are you aware that any lives of children have been lost this evening? No. No, I'm not. And I, and I hope and pray that it doesn't come to that. I know of one high schooler, uh, went to high school with my son, who's 17, that was mm -hmm. wounded. And... Uh, yeah, my prayers are out to him and his family, who I know. And uh, and I hope that's the extent of it. We certainly do as well and hope that he will recover. Are, are, are the wounds such that you believe he will? Yes, absolutely. The initial Mayor, report I just got back to the family about 30 minutes ago was very promising. Oh, thank God. Mayor, thank you so much for taking the time. I know this is a very difficult time. The word that sticks in my mind you spoke about earlier was the empathy and, and providing it and understanding it in the community that is surrounding all these families and the community that's surrounding you now as well. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Good night. I want to bring in CNN's Josh Campbell. He's a former supervisory special agent with the FBI. Josh, I mean, it is surreal. He, he, just hearing that mayor say these words sticks with me. It was just a normal Wednesday, Laura. Just a normal Wednesday. So many of these stories, so many of these mass shootings begin with that very day, that very thought in so many communities across this country. And tonight, early morning and the hours in this community, there is a manhunt underway tonight, Josh. What do we know about this person of interest? We're seeing a picture of him on the screen. 
No, you're right, Laura. And, you know, to further that, that line of thinking, I mean, 22 lives, 22 people woke up this morning and they're no longer with us. You have yet another community here in the United States that is grieving the loss of their own. Again, 22 people, numerous others who were injured, uh, who are receiving treatment uh, after authorities uh, say that this 40-year-old individual uh, went to two particular places that we know of. There was a bowling alley. There was a, uh, a bar. And, you know, you mentioned how this could happen anywhere. People just living their lives. Think about those venues. I mean, places of entertainment, places of joy that were struck by gunfire. Now, what we're learning about this shooter uh, is that he, according to law enforcement sources telling CNN, is a, uh, a military reservist in the U.S. Army. He was a firearms instructor. And so this is someone who would presumably have great proficiency in the use of a firearm. If we show that photo that we have, this is what police have put out. This is an image of the suspect at one of those locations holding that high-powered assault-style rifle. The reason why we're showing this is because authorities want this image to get out there. If people see this in this person and know who this is or know anything about him, his whereabouts, certainly they want to hear from you. And certainly for members of the community, as this manhunt continues, if you see an individual matching this description, authorities are saying he should be considered armed and extremely dangerous. Do not approach him. And, you know, in addition to those victims that we talked about, Laura, you now have uh, numerous members of this area, this community that are sheltering in place certain areas in a state of lockdown, again, just to ensure uh, their own safety as this manhunt continues. Finally, thus far, we've learned no new leads about where pre pre precisely authorities uh, are looking. We know that federal, state, local law enforcement have flooded into that area uh, to, to try to assist with this manhunt. But of course, this is happening now in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness, making that that much more difficult, but extremely serious situation ongoing in Maine. You know, you made a point that is so astute. I, I really want to underscore it here about why the pictures and the, why the law enforcement community is showing the picture, not only the picture you see on your screen right now of the person of interest, but what that person of interest looks like today, right? You can see, if you put it back up for a second, the, the hair length is longer than the picture on the screen. Perhaps the build could be different. The facial hair seems to be distinct as well and different. So it's just looking at the style and what the person looks like in the moment can be really the difference for people to look and say, do I know the person in the photograph to the bottom left of my screen? Or have I seen the person that is in the center of this image highlighted right now? This is why it's important to have it in real time. You've also mentioned, Josh, it is the middle of the night. It is dark. You're talking about communities in central Maine that are not skyscrapers everywhere. We're talking about trees, thick forests, potentially. How does that complicate the manhunt as so many Maine communities right now are locked down? No, it's extremely difficult. I mean, the sad reality is when you have a manhunt type situation, uh, the way authorities get onto that individual, if it's not through their own intelligence, it's either through a sighting from the member of the public or that individual tries to engage another target, another group of people, which is certainly something that authorities don't want to happen. And so they're scouring this area. But again, this making it much more difficult that, that you have this uh, these towns surrounded by a rural area. And so authorities uh, have a lot to contend with, coupled with the fact that, you know, we've been reporting this is someone who had weapons proficiency that was a firearms instructor. And so if he is able to uh, perhaps secrete himself in the woods or, you know, uh, around that area in a rural area, authorities themselves have to be on guard. If you have someone with that kind of firearms pr proficiency, uh, they have to be careful searching this area. And so this is going to have to be very methodical, but certainly authorities now continue to bring in all these resources. Uh, not only the officers there on the ground, we're also told that they are searching by air due to the proximity of 
above uh, this location to the nation of Canada. We could expect that border guards there also on alert uh, with this individual's uh, photograph just to be uh, alert just in case they do happen to detect him. But the last thing I want to just circle back to, you know, we, we often don't try to give publicity to these shooters and just, you know, show uh, uh, their faces and talk about their names. But it's so important at this time because we know that tips from the public do help. I mean, uh, just two years ago, I was in, I've covered so many mass shootings. You and I both have, Laura, uh, but I was in uh, outside of Chicago in Highland Park, Illinois. Authorities did just what they're doing here. They pushed Ooh. the suspect's information out. It was a concerned member of the public who saw that in the media, called police. Authorities were able to quickly launch a rapid response SWAT team and take that person into custody. So if you are watching this right now, do not discount your ability to provide information uh, to authorities that they can go on. And then after this resolution happens, wh however this turns out, we know that typically there are three ways either the suspect will be taken into custody peacefully. Sometimes they en are engaged by police and are shot. Sometimes they opt to uh, to take their own life. Again, we're, us and all of us and police are certainly hoping for the most peaceful resolution they can to bring this person into custody. But there could be a lot of questions about where there are potential warning signs with this suspect. We've been reporting that uh, he apparently had some type of mental health issues. I'll say, as I've been saying throughout the night, and as we always say, just because someone has a mental health issue does not mean that they will go on to commit a crime. We do not want to stigmatize mental health, but that's important because we live in this era where particularly if this was an army reservist, uh, they're, they're on guard for the so-called insider threat. You're supposed to pay attention to potential warning signs like this, as, as anyone in the community should do. So we're going to have right. to look for those warning signs to figure out, was there something there that authorities you know, could have gotten on early on? Uh, that, of course, no comfort to those who are grieving the loss of their, their family members, their loved ones, their friends tonight. Uh, but certainly a lot of work ahead of uh, police uh, moving forward as this manhunt continues, Laura. And grieving the loss of a sense of security and safety. Josh yeah. Campbell, thank you so much. We're going to take a very you quick bet. break and come right back with more on our breaking news tonight. A mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. 22 people reported dead, and the police are searching for a person of interest. There's more on the breaking news tonight out of Maine. City officials telling us that at least 22 people have been killed in two separate mass shootings, one at a restaurant and another at a bowling alley with children inside. There's a massive manhunt underway right now for a person of interest, and they have a name, Robert Card. He is on your screen right now. Here with me, CNN Senior National Security Analyst and former Homeland Security official, Juliet Kayam, also here, CNN senior law enforcement analyst and former deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe. Juliet, I want to begin with you because we've been hearing all night that these communities around Lewiston and Lewiston included, they are on lockdown. They're being told yes. to shelter in place. This complicates things for law enforcement. Why? Um, there's a variety of reasons why. So first of all, uh, I do want to say how unsafe this is for law enforcement. We, I have an analogy, or we have some history here. This is the you know, somewhat similar to the Boston Marathon bombings, in which you have a community that goes on lockdown. Uh, law enforcement are then are also vulnerable because you have a person or suspects that are uh, going to kill rather than uh, and willing to kill law enforcement as well. The challenge now for the community. Uh, that is under stress and dealing with this tragedy. And now under lockdown, we see the pictures of Bates College and, and other areas that are un under lockdown, is when do you lift it if you don't find him? And this is the challenge we had here in Massachusetts. 
as well. If he's not found by tomorrow morning, say you know, eight or nine or 10 a.m., you can't keep communities locked down for this long. It's just not, it's just not sustainable. Uh, and then you're gonna have to open up also knowing that this very violent person is still amongst them. This is gonna be the challenge for the community, for the state, for the governor. Uh, what we do know now though, at least in the last couple of, of minutes is, is uh, yeah, the suspect has ties to other states, including mine in Massachusetts. And so you have even other states deploying, as we are here in Massachusetts, state police at the borders uh, to sort of you know make sure that he's not making his way elsewhere in the United States. You also have that you know sort of fortification in Canada as well. But this issue of lockdowns, and it's not just in the United States, uh, European cities have done lockdowns after major terror attacks. And even when they don't find the terrorists, they do have to open. We're going to have to manage that because it will still be a risk, of course, for the community. Uh, but um, that is, you know, not now, but sometime tomorrow, they're going to have to make a decision about how long you can keep the community locked down. I mean, Andrew, on that point, if a lockdown is in place, which it is right now, that means that people are not going to be walking around. So this person of interest could conceivably also be sheltering in a location so as not to draw attention to himself as the lone person not in law enforcement uniforms walking around, provided he's in a place. But you also have this fear that Juliet speaks about. So as law enforcement, how do you make that decision as to when to lift it? Is it in different parts of a community and you're searching inside and out of different houses and beyond, or are you lifting it potentially all at once? So I, I think the easiest way to think about this is uh, to rethink back to, and I'm sure you, you remember this well because you and I spent an evening uh, standing where this uh, man was arrested, but the speaking about the manhunt in Pennsylvania about a month ago, um, Similar guidance was pushed out to the communities affected um, after that prison escape. It wasn't an all, it, it, it kind of turns from an all out lockdown to just a cautionary guidance to the community to say like, you should stay in your residence with the doors locked as, as for as long as you can and you should report any kind of sightings to law enforcement. The, the, other side of that coin is it does, as you said, Laura, forces that person who is on the run to also seek cover, at least during daylight hours, either in heavily wooded areas or potentially by invading a home where a family might be present. And we know that's exactly what happened in Pennsylvania, right? The, uh, the, the individual in that case broke into numerous houses. One of them, there was a family uh, asleep at the time. They knew he was down in their kitchen. So you could potentially force a very volatile situation like that. I think one of your, one of your earlier guests tonight said we should be prepared for a longer term manhunt. Um, that that may take several days or even longer to find this individual. And I think that's probably a good way to think about it. That's not what anybody wants, but we may be in that situation already. We know he's been able to move away from Lewiston. We know he's dropped, dumped his car. He may have been able to pick up or, or steal another form of transportation. Um, but he is definitely on the run from what he knows will be a very serious and dangerous uh, interaction with law enforcement in which he is in the best case scenario looking at spending the rest of his life in jail. So you have a very dangerous and now desperate person on your hands. I mean, Juliet, in addition to all the things that Andrew just mentioned, 
if we're seeing these alerts on our phones and our televisions, yeah. however you're consuming it, he likely also has a cell phone, likely also has access to the fact that he has been identified at least as a person of interest. How does that change the manhunt? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the interesting in the, I mean that perversely, but, you know, is is the extent to which he wanted to be identified. So this is going to go into sort of how we think about active shooters. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't want to be killed. He doesn't commit suicide. He's totally exposed. He knows these pictures are being taken. He knows, you know, this is part of you know, what Andrew and I have talked about, the sort of the performative nature of these mass killings now. You know, they get, each one gets sort of look at me, look at me, whether they're they're announced online beforehand or they call their father and say, I'm going to do this. This is now truly performative. I mean, he And is, by the he, way, he's, he his face is not covered. His face is yeah. not covered. He, he knows this at this point. He totally knows it. He knows that within five seconds, someone's identifying him because of those pictures. They know he knows we're going to know his history, law, um, the military history, uh, his mental health history, whatever it is. Um, and we now know his family, his friends, whether he was seeing anyone, all of those things. We know he has ties to other states through family or through work. So this, that it's that piece of it that would be worrisome to me from a law enforcement perspective because does he want the end to be performative as well? Uh, this is the nature of these guns, the nature of uh, of, a, of a pool of young men, uh, uh, generally youngish men, generally you know almost always white in these cases uh, that that these become. Um, I keep saying performative, but sort of a theater for them. And so my worry looking at this is, is as, as Andrew was saying, if we're going to have a longer. I think we fr you're frozen for a second there. Let me get to Andrew, though, on that very point, because I'm wondering what you make of the locations here. I mean, the, the performative aspects that Juliet is speaking of is really striking and it makes your, your spine sort of shake and shiver for a moment thinking about um, the psychology that would go into engaging in something like this. But what do you make of the selection of the locations? Do you have insight as to what that might be indicative of? I don't think we have much insight into that right now. What we do know historically is that the locations are very rarely ever completely random. They're typically chosen for one reason or another. Sometimes the shooter is trying to uh, access a certain pool of victims. If you have a shooter, you know, we've seen shooters who are made motivated by racial animus and they go to uh, stores and neighborhoods where they feel like they can find the the people they're looking for. Sometimes we've got we had we had a shooter in Memphis a few months ago who went back to the uh, school that she had attended as a child. So my guess is that these two locations have some sort of significance or meaning to this shooter. But honestly, looking at it at this point, with as little as we know about his background, it's hard to say what that is. The, they on the surface appear to be two really unconnected, not even very closely located with each other. They're about four miles apart. One is a bowling alley, the other is a bar. It's hard to think about, you know, the those two separate places sharing the same kind of groups of victims. So um, we really need to know more, Laura, about what his intent was, um, who, he, who or what he may have been looking for. But I suspect that once we learn that, the significance of those locations will become clear. And by the way, it's not just for the sake of curiosity. Part of that is because this is an ongoing threat 
and understanding why he may have chosen certain targets might give insight into either why, where he might be going next or what he's looking at or give some insight into, of course, the question everyone's asking tonight, which is also the why. Andrew McCabe, thank you so much. Juliet Kayam as well. We're going to be right back, everyone, with much more on our breaking news tonight. 22 people reported dead in multiple mass shootings in Lewiston, Maine. The police are hunting for what they are calling a person of interest, 40-year-old Robert Card, and they say, do not approach, do not make contact. If you see this individual, they say he is armed and dangerous. We have more in our breaking news coverage tonight. Police say that two mass shootings in Lewiston, Maine, one at a restaurant, another at a bar, have left at least 22 people dead and dozens more injured. Central Maine Medical Center confirmed that this is a mass casualty shooting event, and they are working with other area hospitals to try to take in patients. I want to bring in Dr. Anthony Cardillo, who is an EMS director at Glendale Venice Medical Center. Doctor, thank you for being with us this evening. I mean, the, the scope of what is at stake tonight, what has to happen in these facilities to assess and identify what level of care to provide, how to prioritize it, it is overwhelming to think about, let alone to actually execute in this way. When you see the kind of weapon that was used in this shooting, what kind of wounds would you expect the patients to have? Yeah, it's a great question. Certainly, even when we have one victim of a shooting with this caliber weapon, it exhausts all of our resources. Um, we, we saw we only have Central Maine Medical Center, Level 3 Trauma Center. The closest Level 1 Trauma Center is Maine Medical Center of Portland, about 45 minutes away. This all starts with EMS arriving at the scene, having mass casualties, and unfortunately having an unsecured scene. You have a scene where a suspect is still at large, meaning that there are patients languishing, dying, waiting for EMS to get to them, to save them and rescue them and start treating them. And you, you can't do that because the scene is not secure. So it starts with EMS trying to secure that scene and get access to those patients. Once they get access to those patients, the trauma teams are activated in all the local hospitals. And then the EMS professionals start doing triage. They determine, unfortunately, who cannot be saved versus who has a chance of survival. That triage process begins, and they, they must have come across dozens of patients if this amount of people have been killed and have been wounded. That is a tragedy for any EMS personnel to encounter. It's very challenging to start that process of triaging. Then it's a question of which medical centers do you bring these patients to? We do activate the medical centers from the field, so they are getting all of the doctors, all of the nursing staff, geared up, ready, and able to, to receive these patients at the centers. Also trying to triage where do patients go? Do they hop on an airlift and go to Maine Medical Center in Portland, or can they be brought safely to central Maine where maybe the injuries aren't as severe? We also activate these trauma teams. 24-hour trauma teams come in. These are a combination of surgeons, anesthesiologists, radiologists, emergency physicians that are there to deal with the sheer number of, of patients. As you mentioned, with this kind of weapon, what we see are very, very high velocity, high caliber injuries that usually traverse the entire body, take out a lot of tissue along the way, 
extensive organ damage. These are patients that are going to be tied up in the operating room for hours and hours. Even if it's only one patient, it's going to exhaust the system. When you have this many patients coming in, it's all hands on deck. Every physician is being called to come in and help try to manage these patients. And they're also going to be long-term consequences in the next couple of days for these hospitals just trying to recover from the amount of just work they had to do in in these coming hours. I mean, what you describe is is so extensive to consider. And a lot of these decisions are done in a matter of minutes and maybe seconds at times to assess those different levels of treatment that can be provided. So if you're talking about the treatment, you know, especially with the number you're talking about, there's not even, for lack of a better word, the luxury to spend the amount of time that you would normally do on a surgery to try to correct. Are these, would these be done in parts then where you're stabilizing initially and then going on to other patients and then returning to fit, figure out what comes next? Exactly. It's, it's all about stabilization. You can imagine the very difficult and sometimes heart-wrenching decisions that all of the medical providers have to make, starting with EMS when they start triaging these patients. And unfortunately, there are patients that just we cannot save, and, and, and we, we move forward very quickly to try to save as many people as possible. And it is about stabilizing and just getting as many people stabilized as possible as they're pouring into the emergency departments. I will say that almost every, if not all, medical centers throughout America that are level one, two, and three trauma centers, we have very dedicated protocols for training and sort of predicting these mass casualties. So we all all have mass casualty simulations where we'll spend one day every several months where we actually have fake patients, actors that are coming in and they are unfortunately replicating these sorts of incidents so we can prepare beforehand to make sure all the systems are in place to save as many people as possible. You can just imagine the chaos that happens when you're working in a hospital setting and out of nowhere you get that call that we have a p- potentially 20, 30, 40 severely injured patients. Um, putting the resources together without preparation would be a disaster. So a lot of preparation goes in and all EMS directors are responsible for running those simulations at their hospital. Dr. Anthony Cardio, just thinking about all that goes into in the preparation and the planning, it is just gut-wrenching to think about what must go into the planning. And then this happens, and you hope that the worst-case scenarios never come into fruition. And I thank you for your time this evening. Thank you. There's more on our breaking news tonight. The mass shooting in Maine, 22 people are reported dead. This is a developing story. The information is fluid. We are staying on all of it. And we'll be live with more after a short break. We're back covering the breaking news. A manhunt is underway in the wake of the horrific mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. 22 people reported dead at a restaurant and also a bowling alley. And another 50 to 60 people injured, according to law enforcement. You're seeing the person of interest identified on your screen, Robert Card. Back with me now, CNN's Josh Campbell. Josh, you have some information about Maine's gun laws. What have you learned? 
Oh, that's absolutely right. You know, we cover these incidents time and time again. And, you know, people say, well, it's it's too soon to talk about, you know, laws or guns. It gets political. But we have to talk about the state of the world, because in, in any of these incidents, you want to understand how someone got access to a firearm. And just to go through kind of what we're learning about uh, the state of Maine. Now, Maine is a state that has received a lot of criticism from the gun safety uh, movement, particularly because it does not have an assault weapons ban. Uh, now, looking at that weapon on your screen not right there, that wouldn't be classified as an assault weapon. Weapons. We would describe Ooh. that as an, an assault-style weapon, a semi-automatic weapon that requires you to pull the trigger, you know, for each round. Uh, but you still, you can fire a lot of rounds in a short amount of time. And so that weapon would not be inherently illegal in the state of Maine. Looking at some of the laws, Maine also does not require background checks on all gun purchases. Now, if you go and buy a firearm from a federally licensed dealer, a gun store, you go through the federal government's background check process. But if you're buying from a private individual or someone uh, you know you met online there are a lot of loopholes there as it pertains to these gun laws and then you know we hear about red flag laws for example that and that refers to these extreme protection orders where if you have a loved one who might be in crisis or if law enforcement observes someone who might be in crisis that owns a firearm they can petition a court to have that gun removed that does not exist in the state of Maine uh, and then obviously you know we can talk about the mental health aspect here as well some interesting details there uh, about uh, Maine, uh, they do require that the state has to report uh, if someone is involuntary, involuntarily committed, that has to be reported to the T uh, Department of Public Safety. And so there'll be a lot of questions here about how this individual actually got this weapon based on the reporting that we've been doing about some of his prior uh, mental health issues. I don't know if we know this, but oftentimes when you have a state that has, say, a red flag law, which we know is not the case, I believe, in Maine, even if that if there's a mandatory reporting about the mental health concerns you're talking about involuntary commitment it doesn't often lead to or necessarily lead to confiscation of one's weapons right no, that's right. And the timeline is going to be so important. When did he obtain this weapon? You know, as we've been reporting, he was in the military, that gun itself, not inherently illegal. But there is that question about if he had these uh, 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 mental episodes and he went under some type of mental health assessment as our reporting, you know, was that ever reported to state officials and what would the ramifications have been? Mm -hmm. Now, it'll be interesting to watch moving forward because we hear uh, a lot after these mass shootings, particularly on the right, saying, well, no, this isn't a gun issue. It's a mental health issue. But that really you know, raises the question, well, what's being done to uh, make more strict the mental health aspects of some of these laws? Um, so a lot of questions, and obviously, you know, our focus on the victims here in this incident, certainly this manhunt and you know, law enforcement getting this person off the street. But each of these incidents, incidents is something that law enforcement studies because they want to learn in the end how to prevent the next one. Right. And you looked at that gun and you mentioned the idea of having to pull the trigger. Some weapons could obviously be modified in some way to be able to yeah. make it easier to fire. We don't know, looking at this perhaps right now, whether that has happened um, in, yeah. in that case. So we'll have to wait and see. But how will law enforcement, I know we have a limited time, but how will law enforcement use that gun and the shells to track down a shooter? Yeah, so each of those weapons, when you fire it, that fi a gun will eject a shell. That can be analyzed by the ATF, by their analysts. Each gun, each uh, gun leaves an independent, uh, kind of like a fingerprint, its own unique signature on a shell casing. And so that's been used a lot to try to track weapons back. So there are a lot of questions about the firearm itself. And again, as you mentioned, which is a really great point, Laura, that even if this was a semi-automatic weapon, there are all kinds of devices that people can buy aftermarket in order to mm -hmm. increase the rapidity, how fast that gun actually fires. Uh, and course, we're talking about lives here. Josh Campbell, thank you so much. So important to you think bet. about all that is at stake. We're continuing to learn a lot more. 
We're going to be right back with more of our breaking news coverage. At least 22 people killed in two mass shootings in Lewiston, Maine, and police are hunting for the person of interest. Before we leave you tonight, I want you to listen to what an eyewitness told me who saw the events that unfolded outside of the spare time recreation bowling alley tonight. Nicole wyman Arell was on her way home with her daughter from a Girl Scout meeting when she saw police lights and people running. What were the age of people that you were seeing coming out? We, were, we heard a report earlier oh gosh, today, potentially kids. of children. You, you saw little children coming out. Yeah, there was kids. That's like looking back, like that was um, probably the hardest part, seeing just families, families pouring out of there um, and knowing that, that that happened in there while they were just probably trying to have a family night. How many people do you recall seeing an estimate? I know it's difficult. About how many people did you see coming out? Do you think it was a dozen? It was a couple dozen? Oh, no, more it was that? more than uh, it was definitely more than a dozen. I'm so bad with something like this. Yeah. But I mean, in the video, you see a lot of the people off to the side, too. They did kind of pile off to the side. Most of what you see in the video, um, when I kind of pan to the left, all those people standing there and stuff, like those were people that were inside. Um, did you see anyone who was injured coming out of the uh, bowling alley? Did you see any visible signs that somebody had been harmed at that point? Um, not as they were coming out, but after we did see some people with, um, as we were actually leaving the scene, we did see somebody that, um, looked like they had, they had blood all over them. We couldn't tell if, if that person was injured themselves, but definitely the person in the middle of this person and another, um, they were helping her. They, I, I'm not sure, um, kind of helping them and they were bent over a little bit and it looked like they were actually bleeding from like their stomach or, or somewhere in the front area. Did you see any of the people coming out of the bowling alley carrying anyone? Not that I can recall. I, I mean, it's all kind of a blur. I wasn't really taking in a lot of the details. Um, I honestly did not think that this was going to be as big as it turned out to be, um, especially not going all through Lewiston the way it has. Nicole, what did, what did, what did you tell your daughter who was with you? I, I, I just can't imagine as a mother how to make sense of it and to relay that to a child. Uh, I mean, we have open dialogue, you know. So we, we talked about it. She was definitely scared. She's like, you know, she started crying. She's like, this is a scary world. We live in mom. And I'm like, I know. And, um, you know, my older kids were talking about getting um, backpacks for uh, the ones, the bulletproof backpacks, uh, you know, because it seems like there's always some sort of threat at the school. Um, you know, it's just starting to be stuff like that gets real when something so big happens. It's like, okay, yeah, it really could be our school next. Um, so we this... came home and she wanted to lock up right away. We locked up, locked up the windows, everything. I do have a firearm. So um, it made her feel better to know that I was carrying it around um, and had it all ready to go. Just, she was scared somebody was going to come into our home and 
I told you, you got you to remember that odds could be so slim for that. So try not to worry so much, but I will do whatever I can to make you feel better in the meantime, too. It's really unbelievable what we are seeing tonight. Thank you all for watching. Our live coverage continues after this short break.